For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Friday. We have survived yet another week in Biden's America. Congratulations. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Catch me on social media, on Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and on my Twitter and Truth Social accounts at Monica Crowley. You can also send me an email about this show to Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. That's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, I read all of them, every single one that comes in. So again, let me know what is on your mind. Okay, today we've got a very special show in a whole range of ways because today is actually the 50th anniversary of the break in at the Watergate Complex, June 17th, 1972, 50 years ago today, five men were arrested for burglarizing the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, at the Watergate. And of course, it set off this insane chain of events that led to the resignation of my first boss, President Nixon, for whom I worked during the last years of his life. We're going to talk about this uh, here because I've gotten a number of emails from you guys wanting a more in-depth kind of exploration of President Nixon and my experiences with him. And we're going to do that over the course of this podcast as we move forward here in the show. But I thought today would be a really good opportunity to, to begin that conversation, to start to let you guys know the Richard Nixon I came to know 
who was an extraordinary man, and this country was blessed to have him as president of the United States. And what happened to him, not to excuse his part in it, but what happened to him was disgusting. I actually have a column today in the New York Post, which I am very, very proud of. It is a total fire column on this 50th anniversary of the break-in. So you can find it at nypost.com in their opinion section. It's in, it's in the physical paper as well, if you get that. But I wrote this column for the New York Post today because I thought it was a critical message, and I'm going to bring that to you as well, because we're all going through these horrors of today. Uh, Donald Trump was certainly targeted by uh, remnants of what had first happened in Watergate. So I, I want to tie it all together. So we are going to start having our conversations about President Nixon, which again, will continue as we do this podcast. But today's show, I really want to hone in on a couple of very specific things about Richard Nixon, Watergate, and the lessons for today, because it was it was a symptom, but it also generated something much bigger that we're contending with on steroids today. So this is something you won't get on anybody else's podcast. This is something that is completely unique given my experiences with President Nixon. So sit tight throughout this show. Uh, Also today, I'm going to be joined by the very hip and cool Chadwick Moore, who's going to join me for a very smart, fun conversation. He is absolutely fantastic. And I should mention on Monday, we're going to have another really big show because I'm going to be joined by the one and only Bill O'Reilly. He's going to be here. So it's going to be like old times, O'Reilly and Crowley, two Irishmen riding again. So you're going to want to tune in for that on Monday. Plus, we're going to have your emails today at the end of the show. And do not forget, Sunday is Father's Day. So a very happy Father's Day to all of the dads out there and to all of the father figures as well. Have a great special day. We can't do it without you. Okay, first up, the Monica Memo. So as most of you know, I worked with President Nixon during the last four years of his life, not when he was president. I was a mere embryo at that time. Um, And in fact, I I love to share this story because a couple of years ago, I was giving a speech and it was a huge crowd, maybe 400, 500 people, something like that. And there was a woman sitting in the front row and I was introduced by someone else. and, And the person who introduced me just said, Monica worked for President Nixon. But that person who introduced me did not put a timestamp on when I worked for President Nixon. So she just said, oh, and we're so delighted to have Monica Crowley here. She worked for President Nixon. She's done this. She's done that. So throughout my entire speech after that intro, I noticed a woman in the front row who was looking at me and looking at me and squinting, trying to get a better view of me. And I was like, oh, she must be a Monica Crowley super fan. That is very cool. So afterwards, when I finished my talk, she came up to me and she's like, oh, Monica, thank you so much for being here. I really loved what you had to say. Great speech. I'm a huge fan. I was like, oh, thank you so much. Really nice of you. And then she goes, she leans in and she drops her voice to a whisper. And she goes, I need to ask you something. And I said, okay, 
And, and she said, girl, who is your plastic surgeon? <laughs> and I said, oh, you mean you thought I worked for President Nixon when he was president? <laughs> no, no, you misunderstand. I was a mere thought at that time. No, I worked with him during the last years of his life, uh, right before he died and, and actually up to the day he died. So no, no, this is all me. <laughs> so she started to laugh. She was totally mortified. And then she's like, oh, okay, now that makes sense. So I make sure that everybody, when they're doing their intros of me, that they understand. I worked for President Nixon during the last years of his life. And it was the most extraordinary time of my life. And I've gone on to do some really extraordinary things, including having this tremendous media career and working for President Trump uh, at the Treasury Department under Secretary Mnuchin, which was an incredible adventure and such an honor. But that early time in my life with President Nixon was, I mean, there's really no other word except extraordinary. Here I was, 21 years old. He was in his twilight years, traveled around the world with him, met with all of the heads of state with whom he met on those trips. So I was with him on his last trip to China in 1993, which was pretty soon after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And by the way, one of these days, I'm going to do a whole show on Nixon and China because one of the most frequent questions that I get is, you know, what what would Nixon's view now be about China? How would he be approaching the threat from China? So one of these days, we're going to break it down because it's a really important question And I think, again, it would be speculation because Nixon isn't here, but I do think I've got a pretty good handle on how he would be approaching China and how he would be advising um, or how he would have advised Donald Trump on China and so on. So we're going to do that in the future. But I was with him on his last trip to China. Extraordinary. I was with him as he traveled the world. I was in Russia, met Boris Yeltsin, was in the Kremlin met with uh, Yitzhak Rabin before he was assassinated. I mean, a, just an unbelievable experience. We traveled the United States. Uh, we did some campaigns. You know, people would ask President Nixon, Nixon to come in and give a speech on their behalf, and I attended all of those. Worked with him on his last two books. Worked with him on all of his speeches. And the amazing thing was, so many amazing things, but... The really amazing thing was that President Nixon kept a very small staff. So there were only four of us there. There was like a chief of staff, which <laughs> chief of staff to four people, but that, that was their title. And then he had a personal assistant there who handled all of his correspondence, phone calls, things like that. Uh, and then there was me as foreign policy assistant. And then there was like one other person in the office. So I had hours of daily conversations with President Nixon over the course of four years until he died. Hours alone with President Nixon, just talking about the state of the world, American foreign policy, national security, American politics, American policy, his presidency, Watergate. And as many of you know, I wrote two best-selling books, I'm very proud to say, about my experiences with President Nixon. The first one was called Nixon Off the Record, which was, um, we wanted to break the book up into two volumes. 
because I had all of the historical stuff, and then I had the stuff that was more immediate, uh, because Nixon passed away in 1994, and so I wanted to do a book pretty, like, almost immediately, Bill Sapphire, of the, who was one of Nixon's speechwriters, and then he went to the New York Times and wrote a column. I went to him for advice after Nixon passed away, and he said, when I mentioned that I had been keeping daily diaries in which I had reconstructed every conversation I ever had with Richard Nixon, Bill Sapphire looked at me and he said, kid, I know what you're going to do next. And I said, what, Mr. Sapphire? And he said, you're going to write a book because you need to let future generations know the Richard Nixon you came to know. And he said, honestly, Monica, that's why you were there. Nixon was no dummy. He appreciated young talent. He said, but he had you there knowing you were taking notes. Obviously, you had a yellow pad, giant yellow legal pad in front of you while you were talking to him, jotting down things. So he obviously knew and he approved. He wanted you to do this. So I felt like through Bill Sapphire, I had Nixon's blessing to write my two bestsellers about my experiences with President Nixon. The second volume is called Nixon in Winter, and that's a bigger volume that deals with Watergate, his his thoughts on Watergate, Vietnam, his family, his religious faith, uh, his career, his life. I'm so proud of both books, but that Nixon in Winter is really something, if I do say so myself. The first one, Nixon Off the Record, deals with the 1992 presidential campaign, which was George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and people forget Patrick Buchanan, who was really the first America First MAGA candidate. Long before Donald Trump, there was Pat Buchanan. So Buchanan really paved the way for Donald Trump in many ways, totally different personalities, different life experiences. But Buchanan really was the first modern one, the the first modern populist. And he smashed through a lot of walls and ceilings and so on. And, uh, And Donald Trump should actually be very grateful to Buchanan for doing that. He paved the way. But anyway, so the first book is about the 1992 presidential campaign, and Nixon was in the middle of that. Second book is more historical. It's more about who Nixon was, his legacy, and his final thoughts on the big events, presidential campaigns, Vietnam, Watergate. So I'm really proud of both volumes, and that job was just the most extraordinary thing. So, and and a lot of people ask me how I got the job, and I want to share that with you, and then we'll hit a break, and then I'll talk about what I wrote today on this 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, because the whole event, Watergate, and the Nixon's resignation, and the Nixon's comeback, it was Shakespearean, but it also planted the seeds for what we're going through today, so we're going to handle that in a second, but how I got the job, and I love to share this story. I was a junior in college, Colgate University, majoring in political science, loving the courses that I was taking, presidency, Congress, yada, yada. But the spring of my junior year, I noticed on the syllabus for that semester, a brand new course being taught by a new professor called National Security. And it caught my eye. I said, let me take this. Took the course, absolutely loved it, fell in love with the material, And I was the only kid out of a class of about 70, 75, to get an A+. 
So the new professor happened to be a conservative. And his name was Robert Kaufman. He's no longer at Colgate, but he was an extraordinary professor. And he was like one of two conservative professors on the campus. And I was one of maybe zero, (laughs) one of one uh, conservative kid on the campus. So he became a great mentor to me. And when we were wrapping up the semester and I got my A+, I went to him and I said, look, I love this material and I'd love to build a career out of it. Any advice? And he got up, he went to his bookcase and he took down four books and he handed them to me. And he said, go home this summer, read these books. And when you come back in the fall, we'll talk about what you learned from them and how you can parlay it into a career. State Department, CIA, NSA, ambassadorship, something. And I said, great. Went home that summer. Of the four books that he gave to me, two were Kissinger's memoirs, which are like 1,200 pages long each. And I was like, "Mm, not going to start with that. (laughs) So the first one I chose to read was a foreign policy book written by President Nixon. And at that point in his life, he wrote a new foreign policy book every two years to keep up with how the world was changing. I read the book. It blew me away. I sat down and I wrote President Nixon a letter. It was a substantive letter. It was also a fan letter. I I made it very clear that I was a huge admirer of his and respected him tremendously. But it dealt with the issues that he raised in the book. The Cold War was beginning to come to an end, right? So it was like the restructuring of NATO and how we go forward and a collapsing Soviet Union and all of those things. So I wrote the letter forgot about it. And, and about a month later, I went to my mom's mailbox because I was home for the summer. And I took out a handwritten note from Richard Nixon in my mailbox. And I started to shake. I could not believe it. You know, when I mailed the two letters, two copies of my letter, I didn't know, I mean, how do you reach a former president of the United States? So I did two creative things. I looked at the bottom of his author's note in his book, and he signed it RN, he dated it, and then he put Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey, where he lived, or where his office was. So I sent one copy to, the, to Richard Nixon, care of the Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey post office, and I sent another copy to, his, to him, care of his publisher, Random House, in New York. Never expected him to get it, and you know what, you guys? He got both letters. And he invited me, in his letter to me, he invited me to come to his office in New Jersey and meet with him so I could pay my respects, which is what I indicated in my letter I wanted to do. He gave me an hour and a half of his time. And another time, I'll break apart exactly what that first meeting with President Nixon was like, because it just, here I was, 20 years old, blew me away. Anyway, okay, so that's how I got the job. I graduated the following year, and then he offered me a job, and my whole life and career just took off from there. So the lesson here, guys, and I like to share this with young people a lot, high school kids, junior high, the lesson here is a little initiative goes a long way, and that letter changed my entire life. So if the spirit moves you to do something, do it because you never know. Maybe it won't work out, but maybe it will. I'm Monica Crowley, back right after this. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. 
I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. All right, welcome back. And we are talking about President Richard Nixon and my experiences working with him in the last four years of his life in the early to mid-1990s. Um, and we're talking about it today because this is the 50th anniversary of the break-in at the Watergate complex in Washington, June 17th, 1972. President Nixon was in the Bahamas on a little break. Of course, he was a sitting president. He was up for re-election. He had a great friend, B.B. Rebozo. He had a place in Key Biscayne, but they all went on, you know, a couple of days of a break in the Bahamas. So Nixon was there and he was sleeping when five men broke into the Watergate complex, burglarized it um, because the DNC was headed there at the time. That set off this tragic chain of events that changed the course of American history and gave rise to an increasingly leftist ruling class that sought to achieve its ends by weaponizing our institutions against us, including the press, the national security apparatus, and law enforcement. And of course, they've weaponized others. And I want to delve into this a little bit here because I wrote a column about this in the New York Post today. You can see it in the paper in the New York Post, but I've also posted it on Twitter and on my Instagram. So on Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley, it's posted there with a link. Um, and also on my Instagram ac- account at Monica Crowley underscore, the column is there as well. Or you can go directly to nypost.com, scroll down to the opinion section and you will see it. This is one of the most important things that I've written, and I've written a lot over the course of my career, but this column is one of the most important things. It, it's sort of up there with my two books about President Nixon, Nixon Off the Record and Nixon in Winter. Both are out of print, but I think if you go on Amazon, you can still get copies of those books. I'm enormously proud of what I've written over the course of my life and career here about President Nixon. I promised him before he died, that I would defend him and his legacy until the day I died. 
And I always take my vows and my promises seriously. I will never let that man down. He was brilliant. He was a visionary, which is very rare in American president. I think we had it with Trump. I think we had it with Reagan. Um, and the left has had, you know, some visionaries too in the wrong direction, but, you know, and ruinous like uh, Woodrow Wilson, Barack Obama, for example, not the current clown. He is not a visionary. But by visionary, I mean someone who can see what the world is going to look like 20, 30 years down the road and make American policy to anticipate that world. That was Richard Nixon, brilliant, visionary, but also a very good man, very good man with a great sense of humor. He was kind and generous and funny. And of course, the left destroyed him. And this is what I want to talk about here because this is what I write about today in the New York Post. So as I mentioned in my second book, Nixon in Winter, I do dedicate an entire chapter to my conversations with President Nixon about Watergate. And there was one quote that I recount in my New York Post column today where Nixon and I were talking on the 20th anniversary of the break-in or right before, and he said this to me, quote, those who were after me weren't interested in Watergate as much as they were interested in getting me on Hiss, and I'll talk about that in a second, and on Vietnam. I gave them what they needed, but believe me, Watergate was just the excuse. So I said to him, are you saying that if it weren't Watergate, it would have been something else? And he said, that's my theory. So Nixon believed that since he was immune to the left and immune to their radical viruses, they had to bring him down. Now, again, this is not to excuse Nixon's behavior. He did play a central role in the cover-up. He later, and and actually at the time, accepted a responsibility for his role in all of this, and it ended his presidency. And the rest of his life, he paid the price. But he also later admitted to me that he was blind to the threat that he posed to those entrenched establishment elites, elites that we also now call the deep state, the ruling class. We didn't have that language at the time, but it's all the same people, right? So when Nixon mentions Alger Hiss, Alger Hiss was an establishment darling, very close to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was with Roosevelt at key meetings at the end of World War II. I mean, this guy was smooth. I think he was a Yale graduate, Eastern establishment chic. And Nixon, at the very beginning of his congressional career, exposed Alger Hiss as a Soviet spy. And that whole case raised questions of communist infiltration in our government. Remember, they tore apart McCarthy for wanting to expose it. McCarthy was exactly right. And guys, as we look around now, all of the communist infiltration, not just in our government, but everywhere in American society and life, Nixon was exactly right. And so was Joe McCarthy. Oh, but their tactics. It's like with with Trump. Oh, well, his tone mean tweets, his tactics. Every time you hear that, understand they are trying to distract you from the communist Maoist infiltration happening in this country to destroy it and rebuild it as a multi-pronged Marxist entity. 
okay? So that's why I wanted to write this piece. Because now, in retrospect, 50 years after the break-in, now we really know what's going on. You know, they never seek to destroy Barack Obama. They never seek to destroy Joe Biden. He's blown himself up, but that's a separate issue. No, it's only the strongest people, and not even the, the leaders alone. You know, we saw them try to go after Ronald Reagan on Iran-Contra. They were calling George uh, W. Bush a war criminal, tried to impeach him, impeach Trump twice over nonsense. They do it to distract you from what they are actually doing. And they've got to go after not just the leaders who pose existential threats to them, but they have to go after all of us that support and see it. So when they got Nixon's scalp in 1974, these dark forces that we now know as the left and the Marxist and the deep state, the the ruling class, they became incredibly emboldened. They ramped up their efforts to crush all opposition to their agenda. When they got Nixon, they knew that they were empowered and emboldened, and then they felt justified pushing forward because they didn't get any resistance. The Republicans were AWOL. The press is all on their side. But it's not just the leaders like Nixon. And and by the way, it also extends to other leaders that they could not control, that posed a threat to their radicalization of the country. So in addition to Nixon, Reagan, George W. Bush, Trump, most of all, probably, but In addition to that, they went after Robert Bork, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, anybody who's like represents a linchpin in stopping their grand project of changing the country, they will take after and destroy. And it really all began with Richard Nixon. When they had success with Nixon, it was like game over for our side because their appetite was whetted. And they grab control over all of the institutions to help them do it. Again, I write about this today in my New York Post column. They grab control of the DOJ and FBI, which became dangerously political. So now we've got a two-tier justice system in which wrong thinkers are disproportionately punished while leftist elites like Hillary Clinton and Michael Sussman, while they skate, And these organizations are now so corrupt that they knowingly perpetuated the Russia hoax against a sitting president. They buried the truth about Hunter's laptop. They're targeting parents for defending their kids. These radicals grab control over everything. They took control of education to indoctrinate kids to hate America and embrace socialism, critical race theory, abusive sexualization. The media, which was always on the left, is now completely intense activists on behalf of this grand project. And the culture, of course, is now almost a monolith in terms of leftism. All of this began, that this modern cycle of national destruction really began when they saw an opportunity to take Nixon out. And as I say in my column, only one side could win because they were in this death match with Richard Nixon. Only one side could win. 
And the ruling class, the leftists, the radicals, made sure it was their side. Let me say that again. Only one side could win, and the ruling class, deep state, made sure it was their side. This is why you got all of these attacks on Trump, because Trump was the ultimate outsider who blew them off in favor of us. Hardworking, normal Americans. He's championing, he was, he was out there championing us. So, of course, he represented an existential threat to them, and they needed to destroy him. They still need to destroy him. Nixon is long gone, but Trump's coming back. And that's why you've got the stupid January 6th committee. That's why you have all of this nonsense, okay, going on. Because it is a part of a war that they are casting. And again, it's not just the Richard Nixons, Donald Trumps, Brett Kavanaugh's, Clarence Thomas, Robert Borks of the world. It's us. It's us because we are with them. We elect them. We support them. We're we're all on the same page. Therefore, we all need to be destroyed as well. Hence, the destruction of the Tea Party, the destruction of America First, the destruction of uh, school board meetings. When any of us normals get together to support America, the America we love, we are smeared, called racist, and the movement, they try to crush it at every turn. All of this began 50 years ago today. I mean, we had bias and we had political activism before Watergate and Vietnam, but Watergate then put it on steroids because the left saw a huge opening and they took it. And when they were successful, they then just ran hog wild. So as you watch, you know, the left-wing press is in this feeding frenzy now over the 50th anniversary of Watergate. So they're resurrecting this long-ago scandal, but they're minimizing the current scandals from skyrocketing inflation and gas prices to the wide-open southern border to the Biden family corruption. No, they'd rather reach back 50 years to Richard Nixon. Why? To continue to smear him, to continue to smear us, and to keep their revolution going. This war in America just keeps going, and that's why they resurrect these things at every big anniversary, to remind themselves, and as a shot across the bow to the rest of us, don't even think about changing this. It's clear that their success in removing Richard Nixon is one of the big reasons why we are where we are today. This is the war. All right, when we come back, we're going to switch gears and talk to the very hip and cool, way hipper and cooler than me, Chadwick Moore. He's going to join us next. Thanks. Well, I am so happy to now welcome my very good friend, Chadwick Moore, who is one of the smartest, hippest, coolest commentators out there. Chadwick is way hipper and cooler than I am. You can find his savvy, fun columns at spectatorworld.com, and I recommend all of his columns. They are so insightful. They are so unique. Chadwick is a true independent thinker, so go read his stuff at spectatorworld.com. And he's got a brand new book coming out on September 27th called 
So you've been sent to diversity training, <laughs> smiling through the DEI apocalypse. You can be alerted to when it goes on sale and get your copy by signing up at chadwickmore.com, which is his website, chadwickmore.com. And you see him all over Tucker Carlson and Greg Gutfeld, and now he is here with me. Hi, Chadwick. What an introduction. Hey, Monica, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Of course, and it's great to have you here, my friend. Um, and I want to talk a bunch about a bunch of different things with you. But first, I would love to get your take on this historic catastrophe known as the Biden administration that we are all suffering through. Um, and, and I want to get your read on Biden and Harris and also the communists who are propping them up. <laughs> yeah, what a topic. So I am, it's, it, I was talking about this with someone the other day, and it's so amazing. First of all, the communists popping up. It, it, everyone's saying, everyone's wondering who's really running things, you know? People are like, is Obama still running things? Is like, what's going Because we know Joe Biden's not making, he doesn't know what's going on. He's not making any decisions. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone really has an answer for this. It, 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 it's interesting to watch. He, he clearly has uh, like a cabal of really wacky, not very intelligent millennial woke advisors around him who influences like woke language and woke policy that he doesn't know what he, you know, he's up there talking about transgender kids. He doesn't know what that is. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So you're seeing this kind of very immature straight from the Academy group of people that are influencing social policy. It appears uh, for this old doddering man who is just has no idea what, what they're talking about. But then you look at the more destructive things that are happening with the economy, with foreign relations, and uh, you wonder who is, is really guiding his hand in this. And you also just wonder, does he even care? Is he just, just out to continue to enrich his family and, and bow to whatever donors or industries are funding the Democrat Party at the present moment, um, it is uh, uh, historically disastrous. I think you're right to, to acknowledge that. It seems intentional, you know, especially the, the, the gas prices right now, a lot of the storages we're facing, seems completely intentional. And he's even said it before that he is going to end fossil fuels. So they can, they can waffle around and start talking about Putin's price hike to attempt to save some sort of face. But this is planned. Uh, they want everyone driving coal-powered cars uh, made by Tesla, and they uh, they are. No, no, I got to stop you. I got to stop you there, Chadwick. Not by Tesla. Tesla is not unionized, so they hate Tesla. They they want you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they they want you buying electric cars from other makers, just not Elon Musk's. Right, exactly. That is true. And I actually kind of thought that as soon as I said that line. That's what might not be the best <laughs> example. <laughs> Completely true. But one of the amazing things to watch, of course, is the media, the left-wing media starting to turn on him like the vipers that they are because they realize even they can't make excuses for this. And they want you to forget that they propped him up and they put him into office in the first place, not because they liked him, but it was just the not Trump option. Anything will do. Uh, maybe this... Uh, sweet old man. We can convince people he's a moderate and get him in. But to watch CNN and other places beginning to turn on him is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily surprising or astounding because it just reveals what nasty uh, people they are who just fly by the seat of their pants and have absolutely no foresight or um, uh, 
and hold no responsibility for the destruction that they caused. You know, I've got a more sinister explanation for why we're starting to see these negative articles come out about Biden and his incapacity to do the job and his age and his cognitive challenges. I I think because the left is so hand in glove with the Democrats um, in terms of their agenda and protecting them, that you do not get these kinds of articles unless they want them out, unless the Democratic power brokers want these kinds of things out there to prepare the American public for a change in leadership. So I actually think that this is all, again, by design. I wouldn't be surprised if the people actually running the country now, Barack and Michelle Obama via Susan Rice in the White House, if they called the New York Times last weekend and said, y'all need to write this piece and we will furnish 50 Democrats to talk to you about how Biden needs to go and how he can't be the nominee. I I think it is a very closely coordinated thing because they now realize Biden, as a useful idiot, is now past his usefulness. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that as well. And and I and I think you're you're smarter than I am about these things and you definitely have, have probably seen this before. But who then who would it be is the big question cuz I mean Hillary which I which I wrote about in the spectator for this month like Hillary is cuz she seems to be positioning herself possibly for a third um uh face plant running for president. Uh, but, uh, and then Kamala, of course, that's, that's, um, I mean, I wish it would be Kamala cause that would be so entertaining, but even they seem to know they don't really have, I agree. They want him out because they don't have a chance with him running again. Um, but they don't really seem to have anyone in mind or maybe they do. Well, so at CPAC back in February or March, I raised the specter of one particular possibility, which got an audible gasp from the audience, Chadwick. But I said, listen, do not shoot the messenger. We cannot live in denial. There's one candidate who, if this person decides to run, we're screwed. And that person is Michelle Obama. If Michelle, yeah, if she decides to run, I mean, she, she, she is, she's beatable, but it's going to be a much bigger challenge because she is iconic. She's immune to criticism and, you know, she's out there. She's got this voting rights group that she spoke to this week. She's working with Stacey Abrams on that for people to say, oh, she just, she loves the money and the life now, and she's not really political. That is all nonsense. And I think, you know, my friend, Joel Gilbert, it's got a new movie about her exposing her coming out soon. So hopefully that'll get a big push, but, and he'll be here on this show too. But I, I think, you know, this is why when they quoted David Axelrod in that New York Times piece, I said, aha, uh-huh, this gives away the game. This is all coming from Barack and Michelle via David Axelrod, via Susan Rice. And if they are preparing the ground for Michelle to run, we better be prepared so, I, you know, she, she is very tough to beat. So we better be preparing now. And if you're Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, whoever is going to run on the Republican side, you better be preparing for that like yesterday. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump kind of broke the mold of, you know, you can run for president and win and having not held office before. That maybe before seemed like people would put, put people off from Michelle. But I agree she's the most. Uh, yes, you're, you're kind of screwed if she runs. Uh, I hope we're not giving away too much to them, but they probably already realized that. Uh, um, 
uh, it would be other than that. I don't know who, what other chance they could have. Right. Well, I think your point about Mrs. Clinton is true. I think the woman has, and I've talked about it a lot on the show and elsewhere. The woman is eaten alive by the fact that she never became president. She gave up her whole adult life uh, to serve her husband's political ambitions and suffered all that humiliation and everything for the sole purpose of being president one day herself. And the fact that she is not literally eats her alive. So I would not be surprised if the woman decides that she's going to make a third run at this, having lost twice before, uh, will not stop her. But the other one that's sort of making noises about running is Gavin Newsom. Your thoughts? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw that as well that, that he is. Um, I don't, th- I mean, I, I don't think that would bode very well for them. Uh, and he doesn't really seem to have much of a, a, a strong national following. And, you know, here we are again with the straight white male thing. I mean, wow, they really screwed over their intersectional championship with Joe Biden, although, you know, he, he appointed Kamala. Uh, but I think the, the greater threat would, of course, be Michelle Obama. And um, but also if Hillary ran again, which she she as you sort of portrayed it, she might just not be able to help herself. And, you know, she's older and crazier now, even then compared to 2016, uh, that it would I would just imagine be another spectacular failure and and supremely entertaining to watch. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. You know, in a country of 330 million people, the Democrats keep reaching for Mrs. Clinton and, you know, the Obama dynasty all over again. You know, they profess to be all about democracy, and yet they keep going back to these family dynasties. The Kennedys, you know, and I know we've had some on our side, the Bushes and so on, but the Democrats, you know, all of their whining about democracy, which, by the way, I've got to get your read on January 6th and this absurd, dangerous committee. Oh, oh, and the the whole like highly produced uh, primetime live uh, tribunal that they had. Um, I'm I'm still it's still so amazing to see even national media and international media running with these headlines that are just completely debunked. I mean, where's where's our truth minister when we need her? <laughs> About uh, you know like six people died on January sixth, and you know these police officers murdered. And of course, we all know none of that happened. Uh, only one person died. It was a, a, uh, a pro-Trump protester named Ashley Babbitt, murdered by a Capitol Police officer. And uh, with the, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people that I've just completely tuned out from the January 6th thing. I think it's, it's, it's laughable. Um, but, you know, when you do that, you're, you're always surprised to learn that there are people who are really plugged into it. You know, they really believe this was 9-11 and Pearl Harbor combined. And uh, it's, it's shocking to realize how they think that. And, and the fact that this is also coming out now, it's like the Democrat Party still wants people to, or maybe just their most energized people and their most vocal people and, and all of their little uh, quizlings and media to continue to focus on this because, you know, of course, everything around us is, is, is falling down uh, and the country is in a terrible, terrible shape. And it's all clearly a direct product of this administration and of Democrat leadership. So, oh, why not just talk about, you know, the granny who walked into the Capitol raised, waving an American pride flag and, uh, um, uh, and, and the, uh, all the information they're ignoring, all the, I mean, how many hours of video surveillance footage were on the Capitol from that day? Um, I don't know, a million hours with all the cameras that are probably around there. Why is all that stuff not released? You look at these uh, statements and tweets that, that the that Democrats and Liz Cheney, same thing, 
are putting forward to the committee. They're highly redacted. They're highly edited. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a show trial. It's ridiculous. It's the stuff that we're accustomed to seeing in, you know, banana republics and communist countries. Yes, and it's geared toward stopping Trump which I was talking about at the beginning of this uh, podcast today uh, with regard to President Nixon, because today, Chadwick, is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. And I wrote a column because I worked with President Nixon during the last years of his life. I wrote a column today for the New York Post about everything that we're seeing today in terms of the deep state and the left, the, the communist war on this country really began 50 years ago when they got Nixon's scalp. So um, I encourage everybody, including you, Chadwick, to please go and, and check out my column in the New York Post today. Okay, let's talk a little bit before I let you go about your new book, which is going to be released in late September. It's called, let me get the title right, it's called, So You've Been Sent to Diversity Training, Smiling Through the DEI Apocalypse. So why did you want to tackle the the diversity, equity, and inclusion monster. Well, because it's this, so this book it's focused on the workplace, so DEI training in the workplace. And you know, I talked to you know dozens of people from all walks of life in the sector of the economy. So you know, retail sales floor workers to police officers to Air Force, uh, uh, you know, people who repair fighter jets in the Air Force to. CEOs and oil rigs, people who work on oil rigs in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and they've all had to go through DEI training, and sometimes, you know, relentlessly so, and, and, and in, some, in some instances more uh, um, sinister trainings than others in, in some industries. And uh, it's sort of a, it's a journey into this world that kind of exposes equal parts, exposes this for what it is, which is kind of equal parts ridiculous and terrifying, because a lot of it's just so funny. And, and when you're reading kind of this stuff, especially like, you know, oil rig workers sitting through their anti-gay training and you're like, and it's funny, like it's, it's stupid and ridiculous. And yet it's a part of life now. So I kind of look into how we got here and mostly just talking to people about what they experienced, um, their impressions of it, and then where it all comes from and what the end game is. And it's something that's so um, a part of our society now that, that uh, you know, just about everyone I spoke to, you know, when I first talked to them. You know, they just be like, I don't know why you're like, why you're writing a book about this? Like, why? It's, you know, it's, it's like it's not really anything. And then I'd say, well, you know, tell me about your experience. And once they started talking about it, they would just become either increasingly incensed and just be like, they start remembering things like, well, this is pretty messed up. Uh, and then I had to do this, or they would just be be more amused by it. And uh, but that just speaks to the fact that we're so accustomed to this stuff that it just does. It seems perfectly normal when really it's anything but and and of course you, you have higher levels of it like um you've got these you know professional race stars that are thrust upon all over media like um ibram x kennedy kendi and and people like that so i really wanted to expose this and also you know have give the ability for us to laugh at it because I, you know i'm a strong believer and you have to laugh at these people because they are evil but they're also absolutely ridiculous and deserve to be mocked yes 
Yes, we need to use Sololinsky against them. And Sololinsky, one of his big rules for radicals was humiliation, mockery. And the left has done that to us for a long time. So I love that you're turning the tables on them. This is a really important book. It comes out on September 27th. And when it comes out, Chadwick, you will be back on this show with me to talk about it. Um, but you guys can sign up for updates on how soon you can buy it, pre-order, etc. at chadwickmore.com, chadwickmore.com. Com and read his brilliance at spectatorworld.com as well. Chadwick, thank you so much. Wow, you guys, what a show, right? Perfect show to end the week. Richard Nixon, Chadwick Moore, and now your emails. So let's hit the email bag. Oh, Bob stepped up to help a girl out. Remember on Wednesday, we had a fellow listener ask how to leave a five-star review of this podcast if she's using an Android device. And guys, by the way, I see all of your reviews and they are amazing. You guys are absolutely amazing. I love you so much. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this and supporting the show and supporting our great sponsors. Uh, We really appreciate that. Thank you. So she had asked, she had written in and she's like, I'm dying to leave you a five-star review, but I don't know how, and I can't really with my Android advice. So Bob writes in and says, on Spotify, you can leave a five-star review. So there you go. Thank you so much, Bob. And again, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen, support our sponsors, and leave five-star reviews. I really do love you guys. Carter writes, Monica, enjoyed the interview with Cash Patel. Remember we had him on last week or the week before? And then Carter continues, I bought five copies of his book and will give them to friends and family who will enjoy it. If President Trump runs again, he cannot go with the light staff policy he did in staffing his first administration. He needs to hire an army of people that will execute his policies day one to control the swamp, then drain it. Lastly, the first Top Gun movie was better than the second, in my opinion. (laughs) Thanks, and keep up the great work. Well, you were exactly right on all accounts, Carter. Trump's biggest mistake was personnel. I think Steve Bannon called it the original sin of the Trump administration. He had some of us who were America first, pro-Trump all the way, and supported him and his agenda. But he also had plenty of subversives. Obama-era holdovers, never-Trumpers, rhinos, active Democrats that either stayed on or who duped the PPO, the Presidential Personnel Office, and convinced them that, oh, we totally support Trump. Anyway, he cannot allow that to happen if he runs and wins again. Cannot. And he knows that. Or his second term is going to look a lot like the first one with constant leaks, hoaxes, impeachments, you name it. Personnel is key. And unfortunately, because he had never done any of this before, so he didn't really know, um, but he was being undermined from within. It was one thing to have the press and all of his external enemies coming at him, those he could see. But what he couldn't see were the subversives within the administration, within the White House, who were undermining him from within. And I don't think he will allow that to happen next time. And yes, Carter, I agree that the first Top Gun movie was better than Maverick, but I really did love Maverick too. Top Gun is iconic. It's a classic. Maverick is the movie that the country needs right now. So if you haven't gone to see it already, 
please go. Go this weekend. You will love. And also, we need to send a signal to Hollywood that we're supporting these kinds of American patriotic movies. Thank you, Carter. All right. Thanks so much for your emails, guys. Keep them coming. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Have a fantastic weekend. Happy Father's Day. And I will see you right back here on Monday when I'll be joined by the great Bill O'Reilly. Catch you then. God bless. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.